Welcome to Movie Maniacs. Mike Rags and Chuck Curry discussing the greatest movies of all time and all the new films in theaters and streaming that you need to know about. Like us, rate us, share us. Now, here are your hosts, Mike Rags and Chuck Curry. Welcome aboard once again to Movie Maniacs. My name is Chuck Curry. Welcome my water Kenny B. Once again, going in for Mike Rags. Uh, this is the Movie Maniacs Weekly Podcast, also heard on WoWO, WOWO, out of Fort Wayne, Indiana, and also Ken. Cool, 98.5 WXPM, Phoenixville, Pennsylvania. Very good. A lot to talk about on this week's show. Our top 10 countdown in the second half of this program. Uh, sort of the coincide with the release of this zany, wacky new movie that I have not seen as of yet. Uh, Cocaine Bear. We're going to talk about our top 10 favorite movies featuring animals. We could also diverse a little bit into the, either reptiles or fish or whatever you want to do. Uh, I was somewhat more specific. Tried to stay to uh, just animals, but that should be a lot of fun. Uh, just coming off a weekend, which we saw a big opening for Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Before I get to my review of that film, first of all, I want to say how are you, Ken, and uh, anything on your mind to start the show off with? I, I am fine. I am wondering how a bear rolls up those dollar bills to snort cocaine, but I'm sure the movie's going to tell us all about that. You know, it's interesting because uh, the studio, which is Universal, had released this movie. It is rated R. It does play, like, uh, from what I read, like a horror film with a lot of... Uh, Last, obviously, it has cult movie written all over. It's created a lot of good buzz on social media. It's tracking number one around $15 million opening weekend. I got a feeling it's going to blow past that uh, number. A lot of people make comparisons. Is this like a marketing campaign or an idea like Snakes on a Plane? Somewhat, I guess it is similar. Uh, that movie didn't materialize into any great shakes, although it does have entertainment value. But this one... Uh, was a critical embargo until this morning, but some of the reviews are starting to leak on Rotten Tomatoes. About six of them so far, all positive. So as we speak, uh, the day it is opening, 100% on Rotten Tomatoes right now, which is good because you don't want this movie coming out and uh, getting a lot of hype and then being a big, uh, giant thud. So I think this is going to make a dent at the box office. Getting back to last weekend's box office, which was President's Day, Weekend, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. This is the three-day we're talking about. $106 million. That movie did get out of the gate. I'm going to talk about it and review it in a second. Uh, that get out of the gate very well, doing better than the two previous Ant-Man movies opening weekends. Uh, Avatar, The Way of Water, came in second. Another $6.5 million, Just a 9% drop-off week to week. People went to the movies uh, last weekend. $657.5 million in 10 weeks. Of release, I gotta be honest. As big as a hit as this movie is, I just doesn't feel, just in my mind's eye, like it has radiated as a uh, national phenomenon, like say a Jurassic Park uh, back in the day. But having said that, the numbers don't lie. 2.2 billion worldwide. Magic Mike's Last Dance placed third, 5.4 million. Uh, had a good hold, just 34 percent drop off week to week. 18 million in two weeks. Uh, so. Fairly solid. A Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. This movie's had tremendous legs in its uh, nine weeks in theaters, just off 4% week to week, $166 million. Like I said, nine weeks, that's a solid number. Knock at the Cabin, M. Night Shyamalan's new movie, which I liked. A uh, really good performance by Dave Bautista. Plays like a hour, ten-minute episode of The Twilight Zone. No real big twist here, but an interesting 
ending and a good hook. Uh, I, I was enthralled for most of its running time. Thirty million in three weeks of release, and just one other movie of interest. Eighty for Brady, three point seven, thirty-five percent drop off week to week in number, week in number three. Thirty-two million overall. Things are getting better. Uh, I, I think at the box office, more people are wandering out to the uh, movies. A little bit more diversification. We need more, but uh, overall, I would say highly respectable President's Day. Weekend now. In terms of Ant-Man: The Wasp: Quantumania, I went to see it on Sunday afternoon uh, with my wife and daughter. They sat in the they, they sat toward the middle of the movie. I always sit in the back seat. Actually, I pull up a private chair at the Pocono Cinema, sit in the very back against the wall. Here's my reaction. I like Paul Rudd a lot uh, as uh, as as uh, the character of uh, Ant-Man. I really do. But I got to tell you, and I like the first two films a lot. I loved Ant-Man 1, liked Ant-Man 2. Uh, very entertaining. This movie, for me, Ken, um, felt like not very good filmmaking. Uh, it, it felt like an absolute uh, mess of a movie. Its opening scene, which took place in San Francisco, though, was very entertaining. Very soon after, about eight minutes in, they get sucked into the quantum realm. Uh, and the movie comes, becomes extremely disjointed, somewhat pointless. I thought, and I hate saying this, but a lot of this movie felt like the classic Hollywood bomb of uh, the way they used to describe that in the 80s or 90s, where a lot of money is thrown on screen, it's very well produced, got a lot of talent uh, in, on, on camera, but um, it is a pointless endeavor, it's not overly entertaining. Jonathan Majors is a new villain, Kang, he got a lot of good buzz, he's good in the movie, he's good. But uh, I don't think this is a good introduction for him because the movie is somewhat confusing, uh, not overly entertaining. The storytelling is weak. If you make a comparison, because uh, I was watching the end of Avengers Endgame on my big screen TV on my ice cream parlor uh, a couple days after, and just comparing it in my head, there's really no comparison between the Russo brothers and what Peyton Reed did in this third installment. That movie had flow. Uh, it had entertainment, it had big moments, it was exciting. I can't think of many exciting moments in this movie. Um, I hate knocking it to this level. I'd give it a 3.5 out of 10. I think, for me, it was a major disappointment. I was somewhat surprised at what I saw because I expected a lot more of a Marvel movie. I mean, there were fanboys who walked out that you know sort of liked it, but uh, from my point of view, I, I just thought this was uh, a pr pretty big... Mess has a few good moments here and there. Again, I like Paul Rudd a lot uh, as as the lead uh, character, but uh, overall, this movie is a disappointing installment in the Marvel franchise overall. So, three point five out of ten. So you needed a can of Raid to go see that one, huh? I wouldn't go. I, you know, I would never spray Ant Man with Raid because I want to see him in future installments, but. Uh, it, it felt like a movie that they, they had an idea. I don't think they had a finished script or not enough of a script. It probably was an absolute mess in the editing room and they're trying to get it right. Could not really get it uh, cohesive enough to make this a very entertaining installment. Instead, what we get is fits and, sp fits and starts of some, some entertainment value, but a lot of it just lays there uh, without a real purpose of being. As we speak this, this weekend, uh, cocaine bear, I said it's going to track around 15 million. And then you got uh, in March the big release of Scream 6, which uh, is tracking at a 47 million dollar opening weekend. That's a really good opening weekend. That would be the biggest opening weekend in uh, 
know, I, I was at my exit poll last night, Ken, and this uh, friend of mine, Danny, walks in, and uh, he says, oh, you know, you're looking forward to Scream 6? I said, yeah, I, I think, you know, it takes place in New York. I think it's a good uh, angle to go. The trailer they cut is excellent. He goes, what do you think of this idea? Because they had said, uh, and I know, this is just pure speculation, and 99.9% won't happen. He said, what do you think if the whole day didn't get Nev Campbell back because they didn't want to pay her, it's just an angle, and secretly she's going to pop up as the film's villain? And, I, and it just hit me, and I said, boy, that would actually be an amazing idea uh, and it would create tremendous interest once that movie opens on opening weekend. Nobody would know as of yet, but once the reviews get out, it would start to leak. I don't think that would happen, but actually, pretty good idea for fans who like that franchise. Give that some thought. That that would be really interesting if uh, she suddenly is in this movie uh, at the end as the uh, villain. They didn't want to pay her the money. That's the story. Yeah. Not the first five, but uh, that would be interesting stuff. I would I would be shocked in the internet age with paparazzi with uh you know twitter and everything else if somebody yeah, I would, I could would make do. a movie and not not be known i i just want to bring up one mm-hmm. one point about uh the, the phenomenon of twitter and advanced buzz and man and the wasp before it opened about a week before it opens you start to get oh the first look screenings on twitter and i would say like like a lot of films in recent years, it's not a new thing. This actually goes back to Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull, uh, and it happens continuously. The first reactions on Twitter seem to be always very positive, and it just makes me wonder if there's certain people who get to see these movies first. A lot of internet bloggers, uh, which means a lot of people that want to be somebody in this industry, meaning the studios, I think, pitch. I don't know what they pitch or what they give or what their deal is uh, with some of these independent bloggers and, and reviewers, but it seems like a lot of hyperboil, uh, and they have these positive reviews in the bag to create a buzz on Twitter. They get a, an early steam of positive buzz on the internet, and then the actual reviews start to come out in the case of Ant-Man, and they're like 47% positive. And even the positive ones basically say it's a mixed bag. The negative ones a little bit a little bit more severe. Nobody, I don't think, there's a very few that actually, actually hate, hate, hate the movie, but most uh, of the negative reviews basically say a lot of things I do, that it's just a mess and it bogs down, doesn't have much of a purpose. But um, what do you think about uh, bloggers or reviewers being in the bag, so to speak, whatever they get from studios to create positive buzz, well, uh, moral or immoral? Well, it's it it's you know it is uh, slightly dishonest. I don't know whether it's moral or, or immoral, but uh, the I think also I don't think the studio has to tell them, oh, write a positive review. They're smart enough to know if they are in this inner circle to get early access, and they don't write a positive review. They're not going to get that inner access next time. It's the same thing that, uh, you know, products do with their uh, influencers. If you are negative about the product, well, we're not going to send you free samples anymore. So it's... Right, uh, I mean, I think that's where, I think that's where the industry has gone. It's like I said, it's not, it didn't start last month. It didn't start last year. This has been going on for a while. Uh, you know, innovation of social media uh, is more prevalent. And, you know, the hard... 
the newspaper critic of yesteryear, you know, the, the Rex Reed, even though the guy's still writing re- reviews uh, in in uh, New York, and, and the guy's, I think, is in his in his 80s. Any of the Pauline Kales, the the Vincent Cambys, those those people, uh, the Janet Maslins, uh, David Ells, Edelston, when, when I when I was growing up uh, in in the uh, late 80s and 90s, he wrote for the New York Post uh, reviews. Those people had influence. Those people were gave their honest, critical opinion. I think a lot of these reviewers on social media who have their blogs and their the YouTube uh, podcast. I, I think you're right. I, I think they do get. They do get access to interview. They do get access to set visits, and uh, their opinion is skewed. They literally uh, bite their tongue uh, extremely hard and close their mouth, and maybe talk out of one tenth of it when they really don't like something. But yet, they sort of give it a pass because of uh, that that uh, that that access. So that that's the story we could talk about for uh, a long time. But yeah, I think it, but it, you know, I think I think it has tarnished the industry somewhat. Yeah, it's also, you know, for the industry industry perspective, they know enough about human nature that they don't have to bribe people. But right. I will tell you I will tell you that, you know, my barometer is what the crazies on the AMC stock Reddit say about a movie. When when Avatar came out, it was, oh, we're you know, the industry is saved, the shorts are dead, you know, long live movies. We made two million two billion dollars last week. You know, forget the fact that you know, the studios don't get all the money and that's the worldwide figure. But right. for for Ant-Man, the big thing was, oh, AMC sold 500 or 600, five or six million, whatever the number was, dollars worth of special popcorn containers. And I didn't have the heart to tell them that, yeah, AMC probably gets very little money out of the container sale, that it goes right. to the manufacturer and to the licensing rights. But... You know, if they're talking about, oh, wow, we were selling a lot of special popcorn containers and not about the movie, that tells me something that I think even the movie crazies who want to see the movie industry go forward, we're not talking about that movie. You're probably right. And I got to tell you, it's going to be interesting this weekend at the box office, the hold that Ant-Man uh, and the Wasp Quantumania gets. I think it'll, it'll fall more than 60%. I think... Word of mouth among the general public will be mixed at best, and I do think that there'll be very little repeatability uh, on on this film. I just don't think it delivers the way uh, many would have expected from a Marvel movie, especially one that introduces a villain that they have such high hopes for going forward uh, in their source material, which is Jonathan Majors' Kang. Now, they can self-correct that aspect going forward, I have no doubt, but uh, as a whole, uh, a perplexing entry in the Marvel Universe as a whole. Here's some more buzz. Uh, uh, some buzz is starting to leak on, and I, I believe some of the sources that, uh, have said this, that uh, the test screenings for Aquaman 2, which has been delayed a year, uh, it comes out this Christmas, actually December 25th, test screenings on Aquaman 2, directed by James Wan, once again starring Jason Momoa as uh, Aquaman, uh, are very weak, and that it, uh, most people who have given reaction uh, or insight in the know say the movie is tested uh, not well, uh, and that the consensus was that it was uh, a boring affair, uh, and that this also was an absolute mess. Uh, I hate hearing that, Kent, but, uh, you know, again, 
They're getting great buzz. DC, Warner Brothers on The Flash. That movie's tested extremely well in test screenings. Also, there's a movie called Blue Beetle. I'm not very familiar with the source material. That's another superhero movie from the old regime that will be released theatrically. That one is tested very well also in uh, test screenings. You know, the buzz on Michael Keaton returning as Batman in that Flash trailer on social media has been outstanding. I, I must have watched it 50 times on my TV. That, that trailer, that's how pumped I am to see that movie that comes out uh, in June. But uh, evidently, the, the early buzz on test screenings is Aquaman 2, which comes out next Christmas. Uh, not so... Uh, a funny story on Jason Momoa, and I was watching a uh, an interview with Amelia Clark, of course, Khaleesi, yeah. and uh, she was saying that she'd you know, be walking around with Kit Harrington or with Jason, and people would come up to them, and they'd hand her the camera and say, oh, will you take a picture of us with them? Be- because, of course, Amelia looks nothing like Khaleesi in real life. Right. It was just, just, like just, an, interesting, like just an interesting snippet. I saw in my Facebook wanderings. Yeah, and it's interesting about Jason Momoa. I mean, the buzz uh, from the studio, James Gunn, uh, evidently that they will not have him uh, as Aquaman anymore after this movie, and that he'll be uh, put uh, used as another character in the DC Universe called Lobo. I think that's absurd to take a, an actor who's known, who's playing a, a title character like Aquaman, and then he doesn't play Aquaman anymore, and then he plays this anti, anti-hero called Lobo. I still don't know how the fan base would like. I don't think I'd like that. Uh, it just When you're known for one thing, you're known for one, you don't want to take this, an actor, make him play a different character in the same universe. Not a, not a star actor. Right. Uh, not a, maybe a bit actor you could do that with, but that just seems like a weird... Weird idea. Anyway, Jason Momoa is going to play this villain, Fast and Furious 10. That trailer also ran during the Super Bowl. Uh, the online trailer is like three and a half minutes. It's bombastic, but uh, I, I do think that'll draw a, a lot of interest when it comes out uh, this uh, spring. Some other news of interest, TV news of interest. Uh, the Walking Dead spinoff, the Rick and Michonne spinoff with Andrew Lincoln. Uh, and uh, I, I, I forget the pronunciation of a name who plays... Michonne, she's also in uh, the Black uh, the, the Black uh, Panther movies. That just started filming. Uh, Rick and Michonne, Walking Dead, just started filming. It's been so long since Andrew Lincoln. It's been almost five years he's played the character of, of Rick Grimes when he left the, uh, the base show, The Walking Dead. I'm very excited to see where this goes. There's also going to be a Daryl Dixon uh, Norm, with Norman Reedus spinoff. That takes place in France. That, that also is in The Walking Dead world. And then Dead City, the Maggie, uh, Lauren Cohan, and Negan, Jeffrey D. Morgan uh, spin-off series has also been uh, shot. That comes out later this uh, year. So you got three Walking Dead spin-off shows from the main show, which ended its run uh, earlier, uh, well, late last year. So uh, Walking Dead Universe lives. Um, does it have life left? In this walking, in this zombie uh, apocalypse, I hope so. I love the original series. Yeah, it wasn't as good in its uh, last year, but I still liked it overall. I thought it was a absolutely terrific, uh, I would say iconic piece of uh, television. So there you have it. Birthday of interest this weekend: uh, Drew Barrymore, February twenty second, uh, nineteen seventy five. Turns forty eight years old. Most people know when she started uh, as Gertie getting cast in that role in E.T., one of the most 
infamous movies, greatest movies of all time under the direction of Steven Spielberg. Uh, she was in Firestarter a few years later. Um, she's lasted a long time, has a talk show, very likable, very likable personality. Thoughts on Drew Barrymore? Well, first of all, I, I, you know, I think it's, a, it's an accomplishment that she made it to 48 because she and the bear used to snort together, from what I understand. But, uh, you know, actually, you know, I've seen her talk show a few times in the uh, waiting room at the car dealership. And, you know, she's I never thought she was the greatest actress. Great to say. I mean, I, I think she's a tremendously likable person and, and her uh, her likability on TV uh, is very good. Hopefully, you know, she takes up the mantle of what Ellen, Ellen uh, DeGeneres did. I don't know how likable she is, but on screen she was fine. <laughs> Uh, off screen, maybe a different story, but uh, you know, you click on the daytime talk show, and her show's now gone on for a few years. Uh, it could set you for life. Let's let's put it uh, let's put it that way. Yeah, talk, talk to Ke- talk to Kelly Ripa about that one. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, any thoughts on uh, Ryan Seacrest leaving? I, it, uh, it's it's Kelly, Kelly and Ryan live, and, and a husband, Mark Consuelo, is going to be the permanent. Host. Yeah, they, they've done that before, and I, you know, I, yes. I people, as you know better than I than I know how it is working with your spouse. But uh, yeah. you know, I think they they he's guest hosted before and seems to work out oh, yeah. well. Um, yeah, I mean, it'll do fine. Listen, she's got a lot of clout in terms of talk shows in general, um, late night to daytime talk shows. I mean, I, I just don't think the interest uh, is. I mean, so obviously people do watch. That's why that show is uh, an important. Uh, product for ABC and its affiliates uh, at not 9 to 10 every morning, but uh, I just don't think the, the, the levity of, of importance is there like it was 20, 30 years you're, ago. You're probably right, but, Johnny Carson ruled the room. right, but you know, the finish on Ryan Seacrest, I mean, for him it was a lifestyle choice. He wants to be solely on the West Coast for right. um, uh, the American Idol, and he also does radio still. And uh, you know, it's it's the thing I was watching the other day. And he just, and he just sold his mansion for fifty-two million dollars. So I always okay. love I always love Chuck asking me questions and doesn't let me answer. But that's okay, Chuck. I don't mind. Uh, but you know, it's like you wonder sometimes. Uh, I, I I watch a lot of the clips of Bill Maher. And he, you know, does his show, and then on weekends he does stand up. It's like, why is he going around the country doing stand up with all the money he has? Seacrest has made a lot of money in the industry, and you have to think that maybe he's, he decided, hmm, maybe I want some time to enjoy life. So I, 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 I think that's a good thing. I don't know who's going to babysit. I guess the kids are older now. When when you know when Mark has to uh, be on the show because he's been Mister Mom for years. But I, I, I think it's a good move, and uh, I, Kelly has been great no matter who her co-host has been. And there's no bad blood here. This is a uh, clean, clean break. They're good friends. Uh, the J, you know, uh, uh, the, uh, the Strahan, Michael Strahan uh, thing was more of a harder break. He just basically went from that show to Good Morning America without a lot of notice, and I guess there was some bitter blood between them. None of my business, but uh, that's the way show big go. This goes. I got a birthday of interest I want to talk about here because I'm a big fan. Peter Strauss, uh, born February 20th, 1947. He turned 76 years old this week. I go back to February 1st, 1976. Peter Strauss uh, co-starred opposite 
Nick Nolte on the 12-episode miniseries Rich Man, Poor Man, which aired on ABC. Later that year, September, Peter Strauss starred in Rich Man, Book Man, uh, Rich Man, Poor Man, Book Two. He played the character of Tom Jordash. He was known for doing TV back in the day. Uh, did a TV movie called The Jericho Mile, which was nominated for numerous Emmys, uh, critically acclaimed. Uh, I, I look at Peter Strauss and I say, he's one of the most impressive leading men in television back in the day. Never really materialized to movies. Uh, I think he didn't want to have a big movie career like doing TV. He's done movies, he's still done TV, still works to this day. But Peter Strauss, when he broke in on the scene opposite Nick Nolte and Rich Man Poor Man and then Rich Man Poor Man Book Two, I think one of the best TV leading men of all time. I'm a, I was a huge fan of this guy, and I love that character of Tom Jordash, uh, Book One and Book Two. You, do you have thoughts on uh, P- Peter Strauss as an actor? I, you know, unusually, I don't because I, I really I didn't watch Rich Man Poor Man. And I'm trying to place him right here, right now. So uh, okay. this, this is one where I have to say, mm, wasn't one that really impressed me. Understood. And I think most people in the general audience may not know who Peter Strauss was. But if you ever watch Rich Man, Poor Man, you would know who he was. A tremendous, compelling leading man on the, uh, on the small screen. I, I just wanted to make note. A couple other uh, dates of interest. February 25th, 2012, the 84th Academy Awards, the artist won the Oscar for Best Picture, becoming the first silent movie to win the Oscar for Best Picture since 1927. I say, uh, who cares? I knew when that won, nobody would watch this movie 10 years later. I never understood uh, the, the critical acclaim of this film. I'm not saying it's a bad movie. It's very watchable, but it really had no relevance back in, been, been back in its time. Not going to have relevance today or 20 years from now. Uh, I think this was the beginning stages of where the Oscars really started to go wrong, nominating smaller, uh, lower-scale movies and pumping them up as if they're the highest of art. I was not a fan of the artist. Uh, no, and that, that, you know, it's one of those Emperor's New Clothes things. They they know more than we do, and they, they know what is good, and it has to be quirky and artsy so they can act like, oh, this is wonderful, whereas the average person says, Hmm, this is Shakespeare in love, you know? Well, here's the thing. I, I talked about this with Mike many times on the show. I think where the, the, the Academy and the Oscars in general and the industry got completely disjointed is when studios started to fall in love uh, with the massive uh, $150 million-plus popcorn movie. And a lot of their higher-brow fare, which used to be released by studios, give example like the China Syndrome uh, one Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, movie like Reds. These movies had studio money behind, big studio money behind it, but they were geared to adults. Uh, you know, and, and somewhere along the line, the studio said, okay, the important stuff or the more highbrow, sophisticated, Oscar-based stuff, uh, we don't really want to be a major part of that. We just want to do big popcorn movies. And then the independent uh, companies started to do the more serious fare. And what the problem is, instead of spending 30 to $50 million on it, they're spending $10 million. And uh, they don't have the money for production value. So this movie, a lot of these movies that pass as high, highbrow uh, works of art, does 
doesn't have a $50 million budget. It has a $10 million budget. And uh, the division between the massive movie of $150, $200 million and the $10 million movie, the divergence between those budgets is so glaring that you're getting, you get Oscar nominations like The Artist, and uh, they end up winning. And like I said, you know, to this day, you know, movie like China Syndrome or Rocky or One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, those are great movies. Uh, they have relevance. They're still generational. The Artist, Moonlighting, uh, they won the Oscar for Best Picture, but they're not going to be generational movies that people will watch repeatedly over time. And that's just the way... It is. You have thoughts on that one? Yeah, I, I think that's why I think the Golden Globes and the People's Choice Awards are probably more in line these days because they don't have a an agenda. There's also, of course, the the Oscars agenda that they have to be woke and they have to nominate the right number of people in the right categories. And otherwise, they end up with the backlash against the BAFTA Awards this week where they were blasted as being too white. Well, that's because... The movie, the, the people who were the best performers in movies in this past year were white. And I don't hear anybody blasting the Grammys for being disproportionately black. And I didn't see a lot of non-black players out there on the court for the NBA All-Star Game this weekend. But the Academy Awards have decided they have to be an all-inclusive participation trophy rather than just recognizing merit. And it's, they are actually a metaphor for what's going on in the country where we have decided that, well, merit is wrong. Everybody has to be judged equally because there is this vast amount of privilege that people have. And it ends up being, being absolutely silly. The, you know, we don't, the fact that we want to have a diverse slate of nominees, well, Maybe maybe the best performances in the year were divorce, diverse. Maybe they weren't. Let the chips fall where they may. Well, I, I think in general, and some of the points you make, I, I think, are completely valid. No, no doubt I agree with a lot of them. But I think a, a self-correction in certain instances can be a good thing. Uh, I think uh, shining a spotlight on certain things can be a good thing. Thing and I, I think the 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 in terms of the academy, I think that spotlight has been shined. I think the self correction has been done. I think if you self correct too far, uh, that could be pro- pro- problematic uh, in itself. I think we're at a stage in our culture, 2023, where uh, the voting academy uh, is going to look at what is best. And I, I just don't I don't see it as one way or another. But I I, I do think. Uh, I, I do think I do, do think woke is real. I have issues with woke. I, I think it goes way too way too far. I think some of it uh, doesn't use simplistic common knowledge. And when you don't use uh, l- uh, logic, I mean, when you don't use logic and look at things logically, I think uh, I think things can be skewed one way or another. Uh, this will all play out in the next few years to see where this goes, but I don't think we should get to the stage in the, in the academy where a, a certain a certain amount of minorities need to be uh, nominated, where they have a quota. When you start doing quotas, I think you eradicate the the relevance of of these awards and, and what they, they mean. Self-correction, I'm fine with. Uh, spotlight, I'm fine with. Crazy self-correction, uh, I would have... Uh, 
issues with that. Yeah, I'll give you an example of crazy self-direction or correction. You might know the movie. There was a movie made a few years ago about a, a high-altitude balloon and these people who set the record for uh, ballooning, and it was a true story. And it starred, the movie starred a woman and a man, except in the true story, both, got, both people in the balloon were men, and they asked the, uh, the producer about it. He said, oh, we wanted to be inclusive. It is sort of like having people of color play in Hamilton. I'm sorry, but all those founding fathers, not one of them was black or Hispanic. That's only my point, is that when you... No, I, 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 get, the, I get the point. I get the point. Uh, interesting subject. I mean, me and Mike have talked about this many times on the, uh, on, on, on the program. Uh, it, it's, you know, the, the culture is the culture. And, uh, uh, it, it, you know, Jeff Goldblum said in Jurassic Park, life will find a way. And this is, you know, this is where we are uh, in, in, in the culture of, um, especially the Oscars. So uh, we'll, we'll see how this all plays out this year and uh, years to come. Let's bounce into our top 10. Be, before we, before we do that, since you always ask me if I have anything, um, sure, two, two things I saw this week that I would mention. One was okay. there was actually a Valentine's Day movie, except it was only on Netflix. And that was Reese Witherspoon, Ashton Kusher, and a very non-actress comedian, Tig Notaro, who should stick to uh, comedy, Your Place or Mine. <clears throat> Excuse me, it's your formula rom-com, but it wasn't bad as a formula okay. rom-com, so check it out. The other thing is a Netflix series, and that is The Law According to Lydia Poet. It's about a real-life Italian lawyer who gets disbarred because she is a woman, and um, they didn't want any female lawyers. She becomes sort of a lawyer detective in this series. It's, it's, it's fun. I would watch it. Okay. Very good. Very good. Uh, so the Ashton Kushner Reese Witherspoon movie, was it good enough to play in the theater? I, well, you know, these rom-coms don't have to be that great to play in a theater. Right. I actually would have, since there was nothing else, uh, Valentine's Day other than Titanic, I would have had it in the theater. Interesting. <laughs> uh, but they chose not to. Uh, our, let's go with our top 10 movies that feature animals with the release of Cocaine Bear. We thought this would be a fun uh, topic. Uh 10 through 6, we'll breeze by, then we'll be a little, a little bit more in debt on 5 through uh, 1. I'll start 10. Uh, 10 through 6, animals in movies that I am a fan of. These doesn't have to be great shakes or uh, Oscar-winning movies. Just movies we enjoy. Number 10, there's been six Benji movies. And I remember when I was a kid, me and my mom always used to watch the Benji movies on TV. And one of them that I was very partial was the last one, which... Uh, which uh, was released in 1987 called Benji the Hunted, where Benji uh, is on a uh, uh, on a tropic, gets shipwrecked on an island by himself, and he has to survive in the wilderness. Uh, I always thought that the, the dog training of the dogs that played Benji were outstanding. I just, for some reason, this movie always hit with me. Me and my mom like to watch it. So Benji the Hunted was my number 10 from 1987. Another movie I used to watch with my mom all the time when I was a kid, uh, this is an animated movie. I love Charlotte's Web from 1973, voiced by Debbie Reynolds and Paul Lynn. Uh, the heart and emotion, the animation was not what it is now of Pixar, but it was uh, serviceable. And the story had a ton of heart, and it was very moving. So Charlotte's Web is my number nine. 
number eight. Uh, I went with uh, arachnophobia. I put a spider on this list. Uh, it was sold as a thrillomedy back uh, in the in the 90s. Uh, Jeff Daniels was a star, sort of a homage to Jaws. Uh, John Goodman as the exterminator, uh, though, was very entertaining in this movie. The last 20 minutes were a complete roller coaster ride. Not a perfect film, but an entertaining one. So that's my number eight, Arachnophobia. Number seven, I went with two movies with the same character, uh, Willard and Ben, starring a rat. Uh, the first one was in 1971. Second one was in 72. Uh, Willard's probably a better critical, uh, better reviewed movie than Ben, but Ben had the Michael Jackson theme song. Uh, I don't know. A lovable rat, how can you beat it? So Willard and Ben are my number seven. Number six, I went with a Disney movie called Eight Below with Paul Walker. He's sort of a supporting role in this movie, but uh, it's about uh, his, his sled dogs getting stranded in an Arctic environment, having to survive on their own. Some of the filmmaking in this movie with the dogs is fascinating stuff, uh, and it's very compelling watch. I liked it a lot. So my number six, uh, Eight Below. Did you know they trained four thousand rats for the movie for those two movies? Yeah, I knew that. I knew they did. You know, back in the day, uh, you know, Willard actually was a box office hit. Ben also did fairly well. Uh, they sort of made that on the cheap. But think about working with all those trained rats. I know rats are pretty skeevy, Kent, but uh, th- th- that movie Willard uh, was a hit back in '71. It was, and you actually had two. Fairly good actors in that Elsa Lanchester and Ernest Borgnine doing a rat yeah. movie, which was interesting. Ben Davison, actually, the star of Willard, was a pretty good actor also. Yes, okay, but he gets eaten at the end. Yes. Okay, my number 10, I did a television series. Uh, went from 1966 to 69, starred Marshall Thompson as Marsh Tracy, starred Clarence the Cross-Eyed Lion and Judy the Chimp. And it was, in 1968 season, actually had Aaron Moran in it, pre-Happy Days. It was shot in Africa and a jungle created in California for a set. And that was the show Doctari. That might be a little bit before your time. Yeah, I don't remember that one. Number nine. Okay, I really had something else here, but we had an overlap, and I forgot these guys. I have to go with the two Puss in Boots movies. I love them. Banderas and, and company um, actually take the whole franchise of the P- Puss in Boots and Donkey from um, Shrek. And you have great movies that are actually driven by cartoon animals. You know, you know what I think of Puss in Boots. And hey, it's still doing well at the theater. Number eight, again, two together because the movie and the sequel were both great. You and I should relate to this. When the movie's about a theater impresario fighting to save his theater, except here it's a an animal made or a world made up all of animals. It's Sing and Sing Two. He had great okay. great actors like McConaughey and Witherspoon, Seth MacFarlane in the first one, Scarlett Johansson, um, Bobby Cannavale in the uh, in the uh, sequel as Mr. Crystal was just perfect. Uh, <clears throat> I think that's a good animated movie that adults would enjoy even without a kid. Number seven. You know this movie well. It's Koneko Mangatari. Remember Koneko Mangatari, 1986? Okay, that was the Japanese name. 
when they took this, the movie, brought it to the U.S., took out all of the scenes that would upset people because they put animals at risk or may have harmed animals. It was a story about an orange tabby cat and a pug. And it was, of course, the adventures of Milo and Otis. Okay. No, no human beings in that movie. And Otis, who, of course, had a different name in Japan, was named in the U.S. because the writer saw him sitting on the dock of the bay, just like Otis Redding. Little trivia there. That's really cool. Number six, I remember seeing this with my daughters. A young mouse separated from his family has to survive while trying to find his family somewhere out there. Great theme song. And of course, that was 1986's An American Tale. Very cool. So that's your uh, 10 through 6. My number 5, uh, I went with Mighty Joe Young, the remake. Uh, Disney re- re- uh, remade it in uh, 1998. The first time that I saw Charlize Theron on the big screen, I, I knew she was going to become a star. They paired her with Bill Paxton. Uh, I thought this movie had a ton of heart. The effects were really good. It was directed by Ron Underwood who did City Slickers. I thought, I, one, I think he's a tremendously unrated, uh, underrated director. All his work is always good. Uh, I love Mighty Joe Young. I still watch this movie about once a year. It's a nice family film that Disney did with a great uh, a great star pairing in Charlie Theron and Bill Paxton. Regina, uh, R- Regina uh, King also has a role in this movie. She's always appealing. Uh, also, David Paymer is in it. Mighty Joe Young is my... Uh, Number five, the remake from 1998, Ken. I knew I wasn't meant to wake up this early. All right. <clears throat> well, my number five is from 1995. Stars James Cromwell. Arthur Hoggett, he wins Babe, a piglet at the county fair. Babe avoids being Christmas dinner, but knows he's got to do something to survive in this world. So he bonds with a sheepdog, and he learns how to herd sheep. Of course, the movie is Babe, but it's got a, there's a, there is a theme to it, and that's, are the other animals, including the Border Collie's husband, going to accept an animal that transcends social norms? You see, Babe was a pig, but he identified as a sheepdog. So it really, it, it's really, you know, there's a, mess, there's a message in some of my top five. I need to tell you, I, 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 you know, that movie was a big player at the Oscars, that year, but I actually like the sequel better, uh, Babe, Pig in the City. Uh, I, I just, for whatever reason, I thought that, that had, uh, it just worked better for me. But uh, both good uh, movies made by uh, a very good uh, film filmmaker, uh, no doubt the director of uh, the Mad Max movies actually yep. did, uh, Babe, which but, is uh, very diverse. Uh, yeah, I was, I was going to mention that Babe was actually nominated for Best Picture, and yes. Interestingly, Cromwell took the job because he looked yeah. at the script and he only had 232 words of spoken or sung dialogue. And he said, hmm, this, this is an easy payday. He didn't look at the script in the notes to see how many scenes he was in. He was in a lot of scenes where he didn't talk. But nonetheless, right. yeah, there was a sequel in 1998, Babe Pig in the City, and a bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich in 2000. That was my number, my number five. Four, that's a good My number four, uh, I went with Cameron Crowe's We Bought a Zoo from 2000. 
and 11. Uh, you know, the, the message at the end, who do you like better, animals or humans? I always thought that was a weird line because the girl answers humans, even though the movie's about animals. Uh, I find this movie extremely, for me, extremely inspirational. It's not a perfect movie, it has some issues, but it is a really well-done, character-driven movie with some pretty awesome star chemistry between Matt Damon and Scarlett Johansson. About it's based, it's based loosely on a true life story about a guy named Benjamin Me, who is his wife. He's a widower. His wife has passed. He's got two kids, and he wants to do something for his children and re-energize their life. He buys a house that is also a zoo. He's not, has no experience doing this. And he takes a chance, a leap of faith. He uses his money to do it, all his money. And uh, he's a chance taker. Uh, that's defined in the beginning of this movie. And it's the, 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 the story of a guy who gets to know animals and live nature and, and, and do something nice for his children. I think the movie's got a ton of heart. Uh, it, has, it has good messages between father and, and son. Uh, his chemistry with Scarlett Johansson is really, I think she's never been more appealing on, on screen. Uh, Cameron Crowe, uh, you know, just trying to do a, a, a family film here. Uh, he's the director of Almost Famous. Uh, I like this movie a lot. I watch it a few times a year, Ken, just to pump me up about life. So my number four, We Bought a Zoo, and it's got a ton of different animals in it. I like it a lot. You know, I have to tell you, having been involved in fundraisers for animals, fundraisers yeah. for people actually uh, most people prefer animals that's it's a sad thing about us but that's true yeah you know i, I always every time i watch a movie when that line is in the script i always say to myself based on the whole movie i don't understand i never understood that line like why would you answer humans when the movie i don't know i mean you could say both but not i uh, i don't know that line always perplexed me i got yeah all right my number four uh it's amazing when you look at the Stars, it's it's this animated film, but you had Jeremy Irons as Scar, Matthew Broderick, Simba, James Earl Jones as Mufasa, Robert Guillaume as Rafiki, Nathan Lane as Timon, Ernie Sabella as Pumbaa. It is 1994's Lion King, part of that streak of great animated musical movies Disney had in the early 90s. I far prefer to the live action, mainly because... Uh, Timon and Pumbaa are much funnier in the uh, in the animated one. Hakuna Matata became part of our language. I don't even know whether it really has any meaning in any Af- African language, but who cares? The Lion King, it's still out there. You know, it spawned a very successful Broadway stage show. It had a sequel live action, and it's a great Disney property. So my number four is The Lion King. Very good. Uh, my number three, uh, I went with The Wizard of Oz because I think Toto plays a major part in this movie. And I was looking at some of the backstory. Uh, in 1939, the movie Wizard of Oz, Toto was played by a female uh, canine terrier named Terry. She was paid $125 a week salary, which is more than some of the human actors working on the film. Uh, during production, Terry's foot was broken when one of the uh, the winky guards accidentally steps on it. A second dog had to be used until she healed, but due to her popularity on the movie, uh, she was remembered. Uh, she, her name was actually changed to Toto uh, legally, and the dog was used in numerous movies, and the dog ultimately passed away at the age of 11. Every time I watch a Wizard of Oz, Ken, I look at that performance by the, the, the dog who played Toto, and I say, 
that's not acting. That's just natural. And I, and I love it. So Wizard of Oz Toto is my number three. I always prefer the dog that was a method actor. I don't know. Probably. Um, never, broke, never broke character, right? That's right. That's right. Yep. I, I, I understand she was a real B word, but that's because she was a female dog, not nothing else. <laughs> All right. My number three was actually a true story. It's from 1966. Virginia McKenna and Bill Travers had a great theme song, Born Free, which was the name of the movie. It's the story of George, George and Joy Adamson. They find this orphaned cub. They raise this orphaned cub. The cub gets into a little bit of trouble when it gets older, and they're told, hey, you've got to release Elsa to the wild or send her to a zoo. So they train her to be wild again. They, they end up releasing her. A few years, that's, it ends when they, a few years later they come back. They find her. She presents them with her cubs. They don't actually interact with the cubs because they don't want to tame them. In real life, she would die young a few years later, but would actually die in the arms of George Adamson. So a true story, good movie, great theme song, Born Free. I, I, it's been a long time since <clears throat> I saw that movie, but Born Free had a lot of rel- rel- relevance uh, back in the day. did very well when it played in uh, theaters. Good pick. My number two, I want a movie called Project X from 1987, which starred Matthew Broderick uh, as a military, a disgraced military officer who gets assigned to this experimental military lab where, they, where they're doing flying tests uh, using radiation on chimpanzees. Uh, this movie is not, not was sort of on the down from Matthew Broderick in his career after Ferris Bueller uh, and, and War Games. It didn't make a lot of money, but I am a big fan. I do watch this movie like once a year. I find this movie makes me feel good. Uh, Broderick is excellent. As always, the chimpanzees are fantastic. The lead ape, I think his name is Willie, really uh, good uh, in, 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 this, in this movie. I think it has a lot of entertainment value. And uh, there's a scene toward the end when Matthew Broderick has to save the, the, the chimp. He's, that's being tested with radiation that I think is pretty powerful stuff. Helen Hunt co-stars in this movie. She's also really good. It's a good pairing of Helen Hunt and Matthew Broderick. So Project X from 2000, uh, I mean 1987, Ken, is my uh, number two. My number two was your number eight or something like that, Charlotte's Web from 73. Um, Paul Lind as Templeton was, he, he was just fantastic. And the thing that I like about this movie, which also Danny Bonaducci was uh, one of the voices you might I not know have known, okay. along with Dave Madden, who played Mr. Whoever it was on The Partridge Family, the manager. Um, right. But it, the thing is that this movie is has become a classic, and it's a way to teach young children about the concept of death. Because, of course, Charlotte dies, and her offspring continue on. So it's, you know, there's actually a, a deep meaning to the movie, even though it is, of course, a uh, an animated movie. It was, I do love Charlotte's Web. And that actor was Dave Madden, who played Kincaid. Kincaid. On the, uh, family. Yeah, I, I love Charlotte's Web. Also, it's one of my fondest childhood memories of watching <clears throat> a movie at home with my uh, mother. My number one, um, I went with The Birds, Alfred Hitchcock, because I, I still to this day find it just a fascinating movie. No rhyme, reason, or explanation of why these birds are attacking this small town, but 
I, I did like Rod Taylor a lot as the lead. Uh, everything they did in this movie was unique. Very one of the most unique movies of all time, directed by one of the masters, Alfred Hitchcock from 1963. So I, I went with Birds in a movie called The Birds. So The Birds can is my number one. I I, I, um, I I have a television episode is my number one. Oh, okay. I thought you were going to say Johnny Knoxville's Jackass. No, no. Uh, that would be just a metaphor for the title, an actual animal. Right. No, no 19... 1960, season one, episode six of Route 66. Episode is called Ten Drops of Water. Of, oh, okay. Of course, it stars George Maharis, Martin Milner as Buzz and Todd. They're working on a Utah ranch. I actually rewatched this last night on Freebie. Working on a Utah ranch. Little boy comes along, wants to sell his donkey, sells it for $25. These guys think, oh, he's selling the donkey because he needs money. So they buy it back and bring it back to him. Well, he sold it because the ranch is running dry. It's well. And his brother won't let him give the, give the donkey any, uh, any water. Donkey's name was Overjack. So they bring the donkey back. The, whale, the well fails. The boy you know, takes the donkey with him. The donkey, Overjack, dies. Family decides, yeah, it's time to leave the farm. The reason why I picked this one, this was from 62 years ago, almost 63, was because I watched this show... When I was three years old. Now, I didn't make... Now, why does this episode stand in your mind? I'm going to tell you that. I I, I didn't make it all the way through. Um, I I fell asleep during it. And for years, my family told me over Jack was saved. But then finally, they came came honest and and told me the, the mule had died. And to me, it stayed with me because... Mules and donkeys immediately became my favorite animal. I had a stuffed donkey named Overjack, and then a newer stuffed donkey a few years later. And so it stuck with me because we all have that childhood memory, and that, at age three, may be my earliest childhood memory. Wow, that, that's, that is a... Uh... Early memory. The only memories I had when I was that young is I had, uh, I, I remember I had some sleeping issues when I was a little kid. Uh, other than that, I don't remember, I guess, a lot of what I may have watched at uh, three years old. Fun topic, though. It uh, was. It was. I'm, yeah. I'm going to make one comment because I, you know, we both had Ben on there. If they were yeah. to make Ben today, it would all be CGI. And that was what was great about Ben and Willard was they actually trained rats. That was not CGI. Yeah, and I, and I didn't put, because I put it on another list a few weeks ago, but the movie Food of the Gods, right, which was a big giant rat movie, more in the horror adventure realm, low-budget H.G. Wells. But uh, when they made that movie, the director got in trouble because they actually, there was a scene toward the end where the rats are drowning. Uh, they flooded, the, the, they broke the dam, flooded the, the, the small uh, village to drown the rats. But they actually did drown the rats, and, and they actually did. And he got uh, took a lot of heat for doing that. Obviously, animals in the history of movies, what they used to do with horses, pull horses, trip horses, uh, that stuff was bad. Not allowed to do any of that stuff uh, anymore. So hopefully in all the movies that we talked about, all the, all the animals were fully protected and safe, which is always a good thing. Good list. Next week will be a new show to the audience. So, whoa, whoa, thank you very much for listening to our podcast audience. Thank you very much for listening. You guys have a uh, great week. See you next week uh, at the movie. Thanks for listening to Movie Maniacs. Download one of our archived episodes. Be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts.
podcast by Federated Media.